Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled you're listening. We have a treat for you today. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Ben Witherington, who is an expert in a lot of different aspects of the evidence for faith and for Christ. He deals a lot with the biblical documents and the criticisms that come up against Christianity. He is definitely one of the critics' critics. So he's oftentimes taking some of the critics like Bart Ehrman and Dan Brown from the Da Vinci Code and others back to the evidence and evaluating what the evidence really says. Dr. Ben Witherington received his Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and his PhD from the University of Durham in England. He is a renowned biblical scholar and professor of New Testament studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. He has authored 37 books with another seven on the way. Some of his books include What Have They Done With Jesus, The Jesus Quest, The Third Search for the Jew of Nazareth, New Testament History, A Narrative Account, Women, and the Genesis of Christianity and the Gospel Code. He has been interviewed on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, and other TV shows and radio programs as well. You might remember his interview in The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He is an expert on the evidence for the biblical manuscripts and the person of Jesus Christ, and I have found his blogs in particular to be very helpful concerning issues like the Da Vinci Code, Bart Ehrman, and other apologetical questions. Follow his blogs at benwitherington.blogspot.com, blog.beliefnet.com, slash Bible and Culture, and now www.patheos.com, slash blogs, slash Bible and Culture. Hello, Dr. Witherington. You've got him. Hey, hey, Dr. Witherington. I'm thrilled to have you here on The God Solution today. Well, good. Glad to be with you. Well, it is common today for people to say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, a spiritual leader, or a prophet. Who did Jesus think that he was? When you're talking about the historical Jesus, you really have to spend time looking at the primary evidence, which is in the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John and some indirect comments in Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament. And in early Christian literature, the Old Testament prophets had a habit of quoting God, they'd say, thus saith Yahweh, and then what they said after that initial phrase was God's words to them, which they were simply the mouthpiece for. You don't ever see Jesus doing that, not once, nowhere in any gospel tradition. So he does not talk like Old Testament prophets, and that's a very important point. Indeed, Unlike the Old Testament prophets, he speaks on his own authority. I mean, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, you hear him using phrases like, you've heard it said, but I say. Well, now, in our modern individualistic age, that sounds like no big deal. It sounds like just one more personal opinion. But Jesus didn't live in modern, late Western America. He lived in a collectivist culture. So when he asserted his own personal authority and never, ever quotes any other rabbis as authorities, he never uses footnotes, that's something really different. And that's noted in the very earliest gospel, the very first chapter of Mark. He teaches in the synagogue, and the people kind of go bananas. They say, what is this? A new teaching and with individual authority. So that's something that stands out about Jesus. There are two phrases that were most frequently on his lips. 
kingdom of God and son of man. Kingdom of God in regard to his mission, he was bringing that in, and son of man in regard to his identity. Now, if you ask the question, where do you find those two phrases together in the Old Testament, there is exactly one place. Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where one like a son of man comes before God, the Ancient of Days, and is given plenipotentiary power to rule the whole world forever and ever, and to be worshipped, and to judge the world. Now, this is really quite extraordinary, because if you compare Daniel 7 to 2 Samuel 7, what 2 Samuel 7 is, that God promised to David a dynasty of royal kings would come after him and have authority to rule. That's not what's going on in Daniel 7. There is a vision of a person who doesn't have sons or grandsons ruling. He himself will personally rule forever, judge the earth, and be worshipped. In the Jewish scriptures, the only person that's supposed to be worshipped is God. So when Jesus identifies himself over and over again as that son of man figure, he identifies himself with that phrase more than any other, pointing to Daniel 7, he's saying something profound about his identity. He's claiming that he's both human and yet more than human. He has both human authority and yet also divine authority and that he's bringing in the reign of God. That's what the kingdom of God is, the saving reign of God. And he intends to rule in that kingdom forever, and indeed judge the world. One of the most telling Son of Man sayings is Mark 14.62. Jesus stands before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin. They think they're judging him. Caiaphas finally asks Jesus, Who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, Yes but you'd be better to call me the Son of Man, for you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds to a theater near you to judge you. So basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm coming back to judge you. You think you're judging me now? I'm coming back to judge you. In other words, if you take the material that we actually have in the Gospels about Jesus, even if you just limit yourself to the older Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't have a Jesus who is merely a teacher or merely a wise person or merely a prophet. You have somebody making messianic claims about himself, somebody who reflects an exalted self-understanding. And that is who Jesus presents himself to be. So was he a teacher? Of course he was. Was he a prophetic figure in some sense? Yes. Was he a sage? Yes. But he also claimed to be more than that. That's what we have to deal with in the gospel tradition. There is no non-Messianic Jesus to be found in our source material. Now, a person may accept or reject those claims, but what you cannot do is say the historical Jesus never made such claims. As you were speaking, I was reminded of contending with Christianity's critics. I just finished the book last week, and I had totally forgotten before this interview, but I believe you wrote Jesus the Seer, in that compilation. I would encourage the audience to check that book out and maybe read that chapter for more on this topic. So as we talk about the source material for the historical Jesus, you mentioned the Gospels. What is the evidence in history for Jesus Christ? 
Well, some scholars would say to you that we have more evidence about the historical Jesus than we have about, say, the historical Julius Caesar. I would say we have at least as much evidence that both of them existed and were remarkable and important game-changing persons in the first century before Christ in the case of Caesar and the first century of the Christian era in the case of Jesus himself. Besides all of the New Testament evidence, which is multiple, I mean, we're not talking about a book written by a single person. We're talking about a dozen or more people who all claim that Jesus had existed and was somebody remarkable, and they composed various of the books of the New Testament. But quite apart from that, We have Josephus, who certainly mentions Jesus in a couple of places as a significant early Jew. We have Tacitus, the Roman historian, who says that Jesus was suffered the extreme punishment, namely crucifixion, under Pontius Pilate. It's right there in Tacitus' annals. We have Suetonius, an even later Roman historian, mentioning this. And then we have later Jewish sources in the the Talmuds, which refer to Jesus as a misleader of early Jews and and some kind of sorcerer, which is a reference to him being an exorcist, a caster out of demons. So actually we have considerable evidence, not only for the existence of Jesus, but for learning that he was a person who taught and healed. You wrote the Gospel Code, which was kind of a discussion of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And I wanted to ask you about the Da Vinci Code and its promotion of the Gnostic Gospels and conspiracy theories about Jesus being married and having children and all that sort of stuff. Even though Dan Brown wrote this as a fictional work, he claims that 99% of it is true. What is the problem with that statement? Well, what you've got in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code is, first of all, over 150 historical eras. So somebody didn't do basic fact check, to say the least, (laughs) on that book. I mean, there are some things in there that the British would call just howlers. Like, (laughs) for instance, the idea that the Qumran scrolls were Christian documents? Not so much. (laughs) They're early Jewish documents. Not any of them were written by Christians. So it's just basic, sloppy historical research, for one thing. I mean, it's closer to hysterical fiction than it is to (laughs) historical fiction. What impressed me at the time when I not only wrote the book but did all these book tours in regard to that is how many gullible people there are out there who were prepared to take in, to simply swallow hook, line, and seeker the stuff that Dan Brown was claiming. The truth of the matter is we have no historical evidence whatsoever of any credible kind that Jesus was ever married. Indeed, even the Gnostic Gospels don't come out and say that. So we don't have any Gospel sources that suggest Jesus was married. Jesus was more than a little busy bringing in the kingdom of God and dying on a cross. He just didn't really have time for a family. (laughs) And he didn't have one. His relationship with Mary Magdalene, which is, of course, part of the subject of the Da Vinci Code, is one of a master and a disciple. Take, for example, John 20. Jesus, according to the story, has risen from the dead, and the first person he appears to is Mary Magdalene, who's sort of loitering at the tomb and weeping. And when he calls her by name, he calls her Miriam, which is her Aramaic name, she responds, Rabuni, which means my master. She doesn't call him honey. She doesn't call him husband. 
she doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad you're back. Let's jumpstart our marriage. No. Her relationship with Jesus, in any sources that are historically credible, is one of a disciple to a teacher. That's it. End of story. No evidence that any romance was involved whatsoever. So, I mean, that's just pure myth, just pure fiction. But the thing is, when you live in a Jesus-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate, which is certainly America today, anything can pass for knowledge about the historical Jesus. I thought about writing up the book tour I did in a whole bunch of different places in America for the Gospel Code, and calling it Gullible's Travels, because I, I just <laughs> it was hard for me to believe that intelligent, reasonably well-educated Americans, day after day, time after time, could accept Dan Brown's book as if it were historical fiction rather than just plain fiction, because it really wasn't historical fiction. But it does tell me something, and it did certainly tell me something about the climate the spiritual climate in America. Not only is it biblically illiterate, but we're at a place in our history when our culture is quite prepared to take a very different attitude towards Christianity, not be generally favorably disposed towards it, but actually be prepared to trash it or reject it or critique it in various unfair ways. And that tells us a lot about the sort of dominant ethos of some parts of our culture, and it's a sad story. It sure is. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. So concerning that gullibility that you encountered, I've definitely encountered that on the college campus. Oftentimes, the Gnostic Gospels are brought up as equals to the New Testament Gospels. And the story goes that the Gospels that we have, the books that we have in the New Testament, were kind of arbitrarily selected for political or religious reasons. What's wrong with that storyline? First of all, there was a collection of the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stick with those and you can't go wrong, and a collection of Paul's letters by the 2nd century A.D. I mean, Marcion seems to already know this. There's evidence that there were already those two collections in circulation. And the early church wanted, as their founding documents, documents that went back to the early apostles, the eyewitnesses, and their co-workers. I mean, if you actually examine the New Testament, we don't have any 2nd century documents or 3rd century documents or 4th century documents in the canon. We have none. Zip, zero, nada. All of the Gnostic texts, even if you were to include the Gospel of Thomas under that rubric, are from later. The Gospel of Thomas may be the earliest of those documents. It's from the late 2nd century A.D., Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Jews, 3rd century, 4th century. They're, they're not 1st century documents. Any historian will tell you, you go with your earliest and best evidence on any historical subject, and the Gnostic Gospels are not that at all. Now, here's an interesting fast fact. I mean, we've known about the Gnostic Gospels for forever, since the 40s. And in the 70s, when Elaine Pagel's first published her little book on the Gnostic Gospels, it was thoroughly critiqued by biblical scholars and historians. Now, it's the same stuff, but when this came up, 
in 2000 and the first decade of the 21st century, wow, everybody was falling all over themselves and saying, oh, how plausible is this, and this surely must be historical. Now, it's the same material, but a very different reaction of the general public. The general public was not that interested in the Gnostic Gospels in the 70s. That story has certainly changed. It has to do with culture shift. It doesn't have to do with somehow any kind of new evidence that the Gnostic Gospels are more credible than we thought in the 70s. It's just not true. Whether it's the promotion of these later texts that some want to say should be included in the Bible, which obviously for historical reasons is not the case, or on the other hand, we have a different type of attack on Christianity, and I don't want to just talk exclusively about this, but Bart Ehrman is becoming famous, and he's written over 20 books, including New York Times bestsellers, Misquoting Jesus, God's Problem, and Jesus Interrupted. And just on a side note, I am so thankful for your blog posts on those different books because they've been helpful for me and knowing how to deal with those. But anyway, his recent book, Forged, claims that at least 11 New Testament books are forgeries, and I would encourage our listeners to check out more at patheos, P-A-T-H-E-O-S dot com slash blogs slash Bible and culture for some of what you've written on that. But without getting too deep into it, is Ehrman on to something or not and why? Well, let me tell you about a conversation I was having with John Collins, who's a very fine scholar at Yale. He could certainly not be confused with being an evangelical Protestant like myself. We were talking about Bart Ehrman's book, Forged, and I asked John if he had had a chance to look at it and what he thought of it. His response was, it's just cheap sensationalism. That's what it is, appealing to an audience that doesn't know any better. Now, I don't know that I would be that harsh. I think there's some actual decent research that goes into that book. Here's where I would agree with Bart Ehrman in regard to that book. He's right that it's very hard to demonstrate that there was some kind of literary convention of using somebody else's name for a document that you wrote. Now, was it done? Of course it was done. There are plenty of documents that are attributed to one person, in fact, were written by other people. And so, in some cases, Bart Ehrman is completely right. There are documents that are forgeries. A good example of this comes, like, in the 2nd century A.D. I mean, the Gospel of Peter from the 2nd century A.D. is not by Peter. So, this certainly was being done. And so, Bart has a point, I think, and, and it's an important point. The question is... Do we have those kinds of documents in the New Testament? My answer to that would be no. But our views of authorship, of an individual writing his own stuff, getting it copyrighted, etc., our views of authorship shouldn't be imposed on ancient documents. And here's why. Ancient documents were mostly physically written by scribes or secretaries. Only 20% of ancient cultures were literate, by which I mean they could both read and write. There, probably 20% of the culture that Jesus lived in could read, but only about 10% of them probably could write. That was a different skill. And so when documents were composed in antiquity, even literate people used secretaries. They used scribes. And we have evidence right in the New Testament that New Testament writers used scribes. 
Scribes were the writers of documents. They were the compilers of composite documents. And so authorship in antiquity looks a little different than it does today. You know, if I had somebody ghostwrite a book for me, and they put my name on it, and I generally agreed with the content, but all of the beautiful literary style and all that sort of stuff in it was not by me. In the modern context, people would accuse me of not being the author of that document. Okay, that's modern conventions of authorship. But in antiquity, that's not how it went. In antiquity, you could have a secretary compose a whole document for you, and then you'd just sign it. You could dictate to a secretary, or you could, if you had a trusted secretary, like the famous orator Cicero, who had Tiro, he would just say to Tiro, look, compose this letter to this ambassador. You know what I think about this political issue. Just write it up for me. I'll look at it quickly and sign it later if it's okay, and then we'll send it off. Well, I mean, in other words, there's a range of what secretaries could do in antiquity, depending on how trusted they were, how long a relationship they had had with the author, whether they knew the mind of the author about various subjects, those kinds of things. I think we have to deal with that when we come to, especially the letters in the New Testament. I think we have to come to grips with that. That was perfectly within the panoply of possibilities of genuine authorship in antiquity. It might not be today, but it was in antiquity. Okay, So, when we talk about the authorship questions of the books of the New Testament, we need to talk about it within the categories and the ways ancient people looked at the issue of authorship. They took for granted that scribes composed documents, secretaries composed documents. And the real question is whether the material in the document is authentically from the person who it's claimed to be by. That's the issue. And in that case, I'm happy to say, I don't think any of the New Testament documents are pseudonymous or have falsely attributed authors. I think that's untrue. Anything else that you'd like to say about the oral and rhetorical nature of ancient documents? Yeah, see, this is the other part. We are an age of texts. We are the Internet age, right? We're computer age. Our big problem is we don't understand that all of the documents of the New Testament in the first instance were meant to be heard, not to be read silently. In antiquity, all reading was out loud. You read things out loud. Paul's letters, when they arrived in Rome or Corinth or wherever, were read out loud to an audience. They were not intended for private, uh, personal, silent reading that's not how reading went anyway. I mean, libraries in antiquity, in Alexandria and Pergamum and elsewhere, must have been pretty noisy places because everybody was reading out loud. That's just kind of the way it was. They were their own audio book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the culture. I mean, here's the important point. The whole New Testament is in Greek. It was meant to be heard in Greek. You know the old phrase, something gets lost in translation? Well, boy, is that true about the New Testament. We lose the alliteration, the assonance, the rhythm, the rhyme, the onomatopoeia. All the literary devices go right out of the window in a translation. These are very different documents than modern documents. These are oral texts. And the sooner we understand the nature of the New Testament documents, the better off we are. Okay, I have to ask you about the Gobekli 
Tepe, Tepe Temple. Okay, so what okay. about Okay, this is the most fascinating archaeological discovery in the last 20 years, okay? It's only just now getting the recognition it deserves, but the dig began in 1994. It's being dug by a German scholar named Klaus Schmidt. Let me briefly tell you what this is. First of all, it's in southeastern Turkey. It's between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's been carefully dated to 10,000 B.C. Now, that should produce a wow. Yeah. Most anthropologists will say the origin of human civilization is no older than 10,000 B.C. And the usual way secular anthropologists read the development of civilization is as follows. Human beings were hunter-gatherers. Then they began to do agriculture. And when you start growing crops, then you become sedentary. You're fixed to a particular place, right? And that then caused village life, which in turn caused civilization. And religion comes along after the fact to help village life not be militant or warlike, okay? People fighting over property, this, that, and the other. Well, it appears that that whole secular vision of the origins of human civilization are wrong. And they're wrong at the most fundamental point. Not at the end of the process of the rise of civilization did religion come along as a sort of ethical protector of humanity. No, it's right there at the beginning. Because what the Gobekli Tepe Temple is, is a bunch of stone circles from 10,000 B.C., where animals were being sacrificed. And you have these incredible carvings on 10-ton monolithic statues. There are 20 stone circles. Just remarkable stuff. And it's clearly a religion-specific site. We have images of deities, humans offering sacrifice. Now, here's what this means. What does the Bible say about human beings? That we were all created in the image of God from the beginning. We were inherently religious. We were created with a capacity for a relationship with God. Well, what is the essence of ancient religions is temples, priests, and sacrifices. And that's exactly what you have at Gobekli Tepe. That's exactly what you have. What this shows is, as far back as we can trace human origins, human beings are inherently, profoundly, fundamentally religious. That's the truth. There is no secular history at the beginnings of the human race, which then later led, when civilization developed, to religion. Nope. Human beings were religious from day one. They were seeking a relationship with God from day one. This is a remarkable story. Now, here's the other part of this. This site is between the Tigris and Euphrates. What other famous site in the Bible was between the Tigris and the Euphrates? <laughs> That would be the Garden of Eden. I think we are dealing with the very place that human civilization began. I don't think Gobekli Tepe is the Garden of Eden. I think we're quite a few steps removed from the Garden of Eden. But what I do think is that this was the region, the Fertile Crescent was the region, where human civilization began. And that is also what the Bible says. It didn't begin somewhere in Africa. It began in the ancient Near East. So stay tuned. There will be more revelations coming out of the ground from southeastern Turkey. You know, before we close, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to share any last thoughts. Any last thoughts that you'd like to share with this audience? Sure. I would simply say history matters. 
and it especially matters to historical religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Nothing can be theologically or spiritually true that is historically false. And that's important to Christianity. That's why Christians still go around arguing about the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jews still run around debating, was there really a Moses and was there really an exodus out of Egypt? The reason is these religions are inherently historical religions. They're not chicken soup for the soul. They're not just sort of spiritual guideline textbooks. They are about real people in real places in real time that believe they had a profound relationship with God, and these are the stories about their relationships with God. And so for them, since God has intervened in history, history it has been ratified as important, and that's why all these matters that we've talked about today matter. Thank you so much, Dr. Witherington, for joining us today on The God Solution. My pleasure. Check out more of Dr. Witherington's books at Amazon.com or any other bookseller. Here are a few more that I haven't yet mentioned that I suggest you buy. Is There a Doctor in the House? An Insider Story and Advice on Becoming a Bible Scholar. Revelation and the End Times Participants Guide and Jesus and Money, a Guide for Times of Financial Crisis. Also visit his website at benwetherington.com. Finally, come and join us at First Baptist in Ignacio this morning, where I'll be speaking at 11 a.m. Hope to see you there. As we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Have a great Sunday.